Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club. You can find the Commonwealth Club on the internet at commonwealthclub.org. You can see the club's videos on YouTube and catch up with the club on Facebook and Twitter. I am Ladaris Cordell, a retired California Superior Court judge, and I'm the moderator for today's program. And I'm now pleased to introduce today's distinguished guest, Terry McAuliffe, Democratic former governor of Virginia and the author of the new book, Beyond Charlottesville, Taking a Stand Against White Nationalism. And if this is ever timely, hey, right. Uh, Mr. McAuliffe served as the 72nd governor of Virginia from 2014 to 2018, during which he was the 2016 and 2017 chair of the National Governors Association. And prior to serving as governor, Mr. McAuliffe was chairman of the Democratic National Committee from 2001 to 2005. As the governor of Virginia during the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, he recounts in his new book his experience in navigating the political extremism and tragedy of the murder of Heather Heyer and the death of two state troopers. The book takes an honest look at Virginia's long history of racism and the ways in which America continues to grapple with extremism and bigotry. To discuss all of this, please join me in welcoming Governor Terry McAuliffe to the Commonwealth Club. Welcome. Welcome, Governor. So first off, um, why did you write the book? Uh, Charlottesville was a seminal moment in our nation's history. It is what we hadn't seen in decades where so many racists had come together in one place, neo-Nazis, white supremacists. You know, I couldn't do it while I was governor because I was busy. But then uh, after I left the governorship, I was traveling the country. I was actually thinking of running for president of the United States. And I went to 25 states. Everywhere I went, people asked me about Charlottesville. How did it happen? Uh, where do these people come from? A lot of people thought they were Virginians. They were not. They came from 39 states and came in that day. They wanted to know about the monuments, the history of Virginia. And I think the truth had to be told. I talk about Virginia's history in the book. I talk about my history running for governor as a New Yorker running for governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia. John Lewis called me on Monday after I gave my speech on Saturday night and and said, Governor, you brought tears to my eyes. And for me, having John Lewis say that, all he had gone through, and I just thought we needed to memorialize what actually happened, and we have a call to action in the book. How do we go from here? Right. right. That's the most important thing. And we will get to all of that. So before we delve into your book, I want to talk about you for just a little bit. So you're a spouse, you're the father of five, and you're a lawyer. And what I found most interesting is how you depict yourself in the book. So this is some of the things you say about yourself, right? Uh, I love people. I love ideas. I love life. I'm a problem solver. I'm a perpetual optimist. I'm a born entrepreneur. I'm not one to fade. Have I missed anything? That sounds pretty good. good? You you got me accurately. Thank you, Judge. Anything you want to add on to that? No, but, you know, listen, I'm I'm not a half uh, full glass. I'm an overflowing glass, and uh, it's just my personality. You know, I grew up as a kid in Syracuse, New York. I started my first business when I was 14 to pay for college. 
ended up being best friends with presidents. And I mean, it's just been a life. And I want everybody else to have that same opportunity. That is why Charlottesville so scarred me. Wow. So you ran for governor and you won in 2013, uh, a Democrat. And you had it was a majority Republican legislature that wasn't particularly friendly. Uh, That's an understatement. All right. (laughs) So my question with a hostile majority Republican legislature, how could you be perpetually optimistic? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. So I actually ran for governor in 2009 first. And, you know, they called me a carpetbagger, New Yorker. And and I ran on a platform of big ideas, high-speed rail, renewable energy. And I said, if you don't like my big ideas, don't vote for me. (laughs) And they didn't. (laughs) And I got crushed. But, you know, I got up the next day and said, you know, most people didn't know I'd lived in Virginia. They said, oh, we see him on TV all the time. I didn't know he lived here, whatever. But then I spent the next four years going to every nook and cranny of the Commonwealth of Virginia. I ran on a very progressive. I mean, Virginia was, listen, folks, we are the capital of the Confederacy. We are a southern state, um, traditionally conservative. When I ran for governor, I ran on what I believed in. I was the first candidate or statewide official in the South to come out for marriage equality. Now, that was a big deal in the Commonwealth of Virginia in 2012. Uh, <laughs> I am the first nominee for governor. Remember, the NRA is based in Virginia. Um, I am the first nominee for governor in Virginia history to get an F rating from the NRA. Um, And I actually ran television commercials. And I also told women I'd be a brick wall uh, to protect their rights. Before uh, I got elected, or actually while I was running, Virginia, as you know, had passed that horrible transvaginal bill. You remember that? Which made Virginia a laughing stock on national television. And they passed the trap laws to shut 25 women's clinics down. Um, that's what I inherited when I went in. But I ran on a very progressive agenda. But I also ran on a jobs agenda. Our economy was in the tank. We had huge deficits. I got to work. I left the biggest surplus in the history of the Commonwealth. Every single woman's clinic stayed open. I actually opened two more. We got rid of all the anti-gay legislation, and people were happy. And, you know, so, yeah, I'm an optimist. But I had Republicans who, as much as they wanted to hate me, um, you know, I'd been chairman of the DNC, been friends of the Clintons, da-da-da-da-da. But at the end of the day, I created so many new jobs, a record amount of jobs, It was hard for them to work against me. They didn't like me on my social agenda. But, you know, I ended up getting 70 percent of the governor's bills actually passed. That's amazing. Yeah. But weren't you sued by the legislature? And so you write in your book, I was honored to be the first Virginia governor sued for contempt of court. I loved it. All right. So, Governor, more information is needed. Yeah. So that, that's a very important story. So I also have the record. I've restored more felon rights than any governor in the history of the United States that's of America. Right. I signed a petition for 206,000. In 40 states, folks, it's automatic. But in the 10 southern states, you know, it's Jim Crow. I mean, this is a remnant. In Virginia, if you steal $201, a felony is $200. So if you steal $201, you are a felon, and you lose your voting rights for the rest of your life. We're one of three states that permanently disenfranchises you. It was done in 1901 by a senator by the name of Glass, stood in our Capitol, built by Jefferson, and said, quote, I'm doing this. He did a poll tax literacy test and disenfranchisement of felons. And he said, I'm doing this, quote, to eliminate the darkie from being a political factor in Virginia. 
114 years later, new sheriff in town. I said, I'm not going to tolerate this. So I did it to executive order. I could never pass it through my legislature and gave it was the most joyous day of my life. And for all of these people, they've never been able to vote. I did it for a gentleman. He hadn't voted in 65 years. He was about to die. He wanted to vote. I gave him back dignity and self-respect. The Republicans immediately sued me, took me to the Virginia court, Supreme Court, which is appointed by the legislature, the people suing me, two states, South Carolina and Virginia. Now, I'm, I'm going to be very honest with you folks here. I went to Georgetown Law School. I actually had a scholarship. I ran three companies. I was a full-time day student. I never went to class. I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. you. You would not hire me. I'm sorry, Judge. You probably find this abhorrent. But I'm I, I graduated. I, I passed a bar, but I would never practice because, I mean, this, you know, I never went. Whatever. Even I knew with my limited legal background that the Constitution of Virginia gave me this enumerated power. And so I felt good. The court was going to rule. It's not even a question. The court ruled against me because the speaker and the Senate leader are the ones who sued me, who appointed them. And they said, we're not going to let him do this because, quote, no governor's done it before. Well, that's not a constitutional theory. Even I knew that with my, <laughs> with my little legal background. And they said he has to do it individually. Oh, I said, really? So I said to my staff, get all 206,000 petitions about this high, take them out front of the Capitol. I'm going to sign every damn one myself, bring a box of pens. I'm going to sign. I don't care if it takes me a week. I will sign every one individual. The Republicans immediately went to court and sued me for contempt of court. I'm the only governor. I actually, I mean, I loved it. And now the court knew they were in trouble. And they basically said, no, if he does them individually, it's okay. The best part of the story is now I'm under court order to do them individually. So I took all 206,000 petitions. I had a beautiful parchment printed up with the seal of the Commonwealth and my signature. I put everyone in an individual envelope with a voter registration card, <laughs> self-stamped address return envelope, oh. all paid for at state expense. Thus, I had the largest voter registration drive in Virginia history. Wow. <laughs> so creative. Yep. So creative. So I loved it. You wow. Judge. Yes, you did. <laughs> there are 378 Confederate monuments across Virginia, most of them built during the Jim Crow era. That's right. In February 2017, the Charlottesville City Council voted to remove a statue of General Robert E. Lee from Lee Park not far from the University of Virginia. You write in your book, quote, we knew that we might have a problem on our hands in Charlottesville. And you were right. A few months later in June 2017, you were surprised and dismayed when the city approved a permit for a Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. Now, why were you dismayed about the permit, and I ask this because doesn't the First Amendment allow for permits for public gatherings, even when the message is not one that we like? Yeah, good question. This is a big debate. Now, leading up to this, I had known, as soon as this permit went in from these neo-Nazis and white supremacists, uh, I had stood up my fusion center with my state police. Be careful what I say publicly, but we had undercover operations going on. I was working very closely with the FBI and the DHS. We were monitoring these deep, deep, dark websites. They were telling everybody to come to Virginia to bring weapons and to hurt people. 
So we knew ahead of time that they were coming to do damage and to hurt people in Virginia. And the problem I had, and listen, First Amendment, you can say whatever you want. I get that. But you don't have the right to come in and hurt people, and you don't have the right to do damage. And my problem with the city of Charlottesville, when they filed the permit, you have 10 days to amend the permit. They didn't do anything, so it was automatically permitted. You should have banned poles, sticks, masks. You should have limited the amount of time, and it never should have been held in Emancipation Park. Who should have done that? Who should have? The city. The city had the authority to do that. And did not. They did nothing, so it automatically got approved. So... On, you know, so I kept arguing that the, you got to get it out of Emancipation Park because we knew a thousand armed people were coming and probably a thousand or two counter protesters. We couldn't control it. That park is about probably four times the size of this room, honestly. There's no way you could control this. On Wednesday, the city finally filed to move it to uh, McIntyre Park, a much bigger park. The key to crowd control and protesters is to keep them separated. You couldn't do it in Emancipation Park. And the ACLU sued on behalf of the neo-Nazis. And a judge ruled in favor Friday night at 9 o'clock to let it stay. And i very tough in the book. I love the ACLU, but they were wrong here. We could not keep people safe. We had no ability. And three people were killed. And we just had no ability to do it. So, on, I mean, Friday night. At the University of Virginia, there's a big mountain. And at 9 o'clock, what you could see is hundreds of people coming down the mountain in pitch black with torches, screaming, Jews, you will not replace us, blood and soil, chanting all of the neo-Nazi chants from 1933 and 1934. This was Friday night. So we knew there was going to be an issue. And then Friday, of course, or Saturday, we got into the insanity and I've never in my life, folks, to be honest, we have heard what I heard that day. Standing in front of the synagogue, they're yelling, we're going to burn you, and we're going to burn that synagogue like we did in Auschwitz, and laughing. Every other word was the F and N word. Every woman was called the F and C word. These are a 1,000 people. Now, I don't like what they yell, but they were physically assaulting everybody. And, you know, and finally I called a state of emergency and declared it and emptied the park out. So we'll get to that in a second. So I'm going to ask you another question on this. So on Saturday, August 12th, 2017, this was the largest white supremacist gathering in the United States in decades, right, in Charlottesville. All right. Uh, Among them was David Duke, uh, the former Grand Wizard, the KKK, with his Nazi salute. Um, How did you monitor what was going on since you weren't actually physically there? Yeah. Well, first of all, the governor shouldn't be there because um, the last thing you want, I mean, I had all my, I had my general in charge of the National Guard, I had my colonel in charge of the state police, I had my public safety secretary. You don't, the governor should not be in the command center telling people what to do. You hire these people, they know what to do. You don't want the governor like saying, oh, do this, do that, because, you know, that's not your expertise. And knowing my personality, they knew I would have wandered out into the crowd which wouldn't have been good. I'll just leave it at that. I would not have tolerated these swastikas and Adolf Hitler T-shirts. Um, but, you know, listen, we knew uh, leading up that it was going to be trouble. I started to get calls about 6.30 in the morning. We were monitoring the situation. Brian Moran, our team on the ground, they had the command center down there. And about 8.30, he called and 
and sent a picture. What happened is all these militia groups showed up with uh, semi-automatic weapons. We're an open carry state. So all of them with long rifles, semi-automatics, and, you know, they had revolvers strapped to every part of their body they possibly could, and they were all wearing military uniforms, camouflage. And all legal. This is all legal, carrying these weapons? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. And... They said they were there to protect the First Amendment and Second Amendment rights and all that. And then we had a lot of skirmishes going on. And then about 11.15, Brian Moran called me and said, Governor, this thing's out of control. Remember, we're in a support role. The city runs it. So if there's a crisis here today in San Francisco, San Francisco mayor and chief of police generally will run the operation. The state will be a support role. So I wasn't running the operation. We were there in support. I had about 975 state police and, and all of these National Guard, but we're in a support role. They should have declared a state of emergency. And finally, my Secretary of Public Safety was on the ground and said, I can't take it anymore. I don't care about protocol. Called me and said, it's really bad. you got to do something. I declared the state of emergency. Right, and you put in your book, you called it at 11.28 a.m. Right. Right? Um, and then... And remember, the rally wasn't supposed to start till noon. Right. So you're, you're ahead of the curve here. Yeah. You call the state of emergency. Then you get a call from the White House, right? Describe the conversation yeah. you had with Mr. So Trump. President Trump calls me, which the president will do in an emergency. We'll call the governor of the state to try and find out. You know, I had dealt with Trump a lot that year because I was chairman of the National Governors Association. So I represented all the governors. And, and I'd had a lot of fights with Trump. On his Muslim ban, there were people coming into Dulles Airport, our big international airport, U.S. citizens being detained for hours because they'd gotten on a plane from one of those countries. And I would go and demand they be released. I mean, this is America, folks. Five hours detained without access to a legal counsel, and you're a U.S. citizen, really? I was very angry with him with the ICE raids in Northern Virginia. They were stopping everybody. There was a woman who was stopped for a broken taillight they started deportation uh, hearings against her. I, as governor, I pardoned her. I took away the underlying crime, hoping that would stop it. It didn't. And it was a famous picture in the Washington Post of this woman being taken away in a van with her two children hanging onto the window as it pulled away. I'm just So I had a lot of fights with him. So when he called, I explained to him. I said, Mr. President, we got the thousands of these neo-Nazis, white supremacists, horrible people. This is bad for the country. I said, this is your opportunity, Mr. President. You know, Bill Clinton had Oklahoma City. President Obama um, had Charleston and Sandy Hook. President Bush uh, had 9-11. We were looking to the leader of our country to say, no, this, this stuff will not be tolerated. And so we talked 15, 20 minutes. And I told the president, you got to stop your hate speech. This is really hurting the country. And I I foolishly said, you know, you're hurting my economy in Northern Virginia. (laughs) Then he went off on a 10-minute how great the economy was. Great, You know, I mean, you know the deal. But I've had, no, Mr. President. He said, at the end, you know, Terry, you and I got to work together on this hate stuff. I said, great. I felt pretty good. Hung up the phone for his press conference to go first. I'd go after him. Half an hour went by. Hour went by. Hour and a half went by. Two hours went by. I'm thinking, what? What what happened to his press conference? And you know what happened. Bannon or Miller or whatever, the White House got a hold of him and said, no, Mr. President, you will not. You will not mention the word neo-Nazi or white supremacist. 
and you will not condemn him. And then he came out and he did his press conference, if you all remember, and he said there were good people on both sides. Now, there were not good people on the neo-Nazi side. Heather Heyer was killed that year, that day, 32 years old, fighting against white extremism. I lost two state troopers that day. He failed the country. So we're going to get to a little more of that. But after you got word that Heather Heyer, Jay Cullen, and Burke Bates um, had been killed, all three to whom you dedicate your book, by the way, um, that must have been a governor's worst nightmare. You get this information, and two of the three you knew. I mean, you were close to them. So what did you do as soon as you heard that? So when I called the state of emergency, the state police went in. They said, you have 11 minutes to clear the park. And they cleared the park. And then, as I say, the National Guard went in and secured the park. So 11.50, 10 minutes before the rally was even supposed to start, everything was over. We'd had no real injuries. Nobody had gone to the hospital. No property damage, zero. We actually felt we had, you know, the crisis was over. And then about an hour later, I get a call from Brian. He says, is the TV on? I said, yeah. He said, well, you're about to see something. And as you know, James Field weaponized his car and ran through a downtown city street of Charlottesville and killed Heather and literally just so maimed 35 people, injured 35 people. Couldn't believe it. So at that point, I said, I got to get down there. I'm going to do the press conference from there. And so I took a – the helicopter I used as governor was there in Charlottesville doing surveillance with my pilot and co-pilot who had been a member of my security detail. So I flew down on Fairfax County's helicopter. And as soon as I landed, um, large contingent of police to take me in because of all the issues, uh, in the front seat was the head of my security detail. He said, uh, uh, aircraft has just gone down, Governor. Now, there weren't a lot of planes in the Charlottesville airspace, but there was an airport. I had a sinking feeling because I knew our helicopter was there. And so I went over to where we were going to do the press conference, and I was about to go out. And I knew I had to speak for the Virginia and the country to give my speech because Trump had just so fumbled the ball. And I knew it was very important. Everybody was watching. And then five minutes before I went out, they came in and told me that the helicopter had crashed, it was ours, and that Burke and Jay were killed. And I got to tell you, Burke and Jay, as I say, Jay had been my pilot uh, for three and a half years. Burke had been on my executive protection unit. When you get elected governor, you always have two state troopers with me, one with my wife, and then with the kids. And Burke of, of the 14 was the biggest character of them all. Um, I tell a couple stories in the book. Um, so I get elected, we move to Richmond, and my daughter Sally, I have five children, my daughter Sally is starting high school. You know, she's in a new city, she doesn't know anybody. Her dad's governor, not good, uh, <laughs> going to high school. So Burke happened to be driving her that day, so they pulls up to St. Catharines, and all the seniors are out there, welcome the freshmen. And you know, it's hard. You know, she just moved to the city, she doesn't know anybody. And as she pulls up, she's so nervous and... She says to Burke, can we just pull around the corner and let me out quietly? And Burke says, sure. He pulls right up in the front, turns the siren and lights on, <laughs> and gets on the microphone. Sally McAuliffe has arrived. <laughs> and uh, mortified my daughter. But she said at the end it was an icebreaker. <laughs> I'm bad. And then the other story I tell about Burke, which is the last time I saw him. So Burke 
had been in my security detail. He always wanted to be a pilot, a helicopter pilot. He finally got it. So he came over. It was his last day as an EPU agent. And he came over to see me. And uh, I have the picture in the book of actually the meeting. And uh, we had nice pleasantries. And he said, I just want you to know, I just sent your son a care package. My son Jack uh, is a captain of the Marine Corps, and he was stationed in Iraq. And he was over there, and Burke said, I just sent him a great package. I said, great, Burke, what'd you send him? He said, I sent him a whole bunch of cigars, because my son said there's not a lot to do over in the desert in Iraq, but when you get back, smoke a cigar, relax. He said, I sent him some magazines. I said, great, he'll like Time, Newsweek. He said, oh, no, a little more colorful than that, Governor. (laughs) And and the best part is he said, and I sent him uh, a, a bottle of Irish whiskey. I said, what? I said, you can't send to the military a bottle of whiskey, especially in a Muslim country where alcohol isn't allowed. Oh, said, Governor, don't worry. He said, I put it in a Listerine bottle. (laughs) (laughs) That's the last time I talked to Burke. Uh, The the package took a month to get to Iraq. I said to my son, what'd you get? He said, I got some cigars and some interesting magazines, Dad. I said, did you get any Listerine or any? He said, no, but there was a letter in the package from a military inspector and said, tell your friend, don't ever send liquor ever again. Got it. it. How did your press conference go, in your view? So as I say, that had just happened. Yes. I just found out he died. I talked to my wife, who really had a hard time even talking because she wasn't as close to Jay because she didn't fly with like every day with me on the helicopter. But Burke and she were like inseparable. Right. And so the family was really broken up. And the president had just had his press conference. The president had just held his he press conference. He had just had his, and he failed. And then, so now... I was irate at his press conference. Right, so how... What how do you did, mean, good people? How did yours go? So I went out, and I tell him the book, I have no notes. I knew what I wanted to say. And I called him out. I said, neo-Nazis and white supremacists, you're not wanted in this commonwealth. Get the <clears throat> hell out of our state. In fact, while you're at it, get out of America. I said, we don't tolerate it. I gave about an eight-minute speech from my heart. I had no notes. I said, you parade around like you're a bunch of patriots. You're a bunch of cowards. You're a disgrace to our country. And talked about the unification, talked about my call with the president. I called the president out uh, at that press conference in front of a 1,000 cameras. But, you know, I had to do what I thought was right. I didn't want people thinking, first of all, that this is who we were as Virginians. And I didn't want people around the world thinking this is who we are as Americans. We don't act like this. We don't talk like this. Yeah. Amen. So you, you, write, you write in your book that you have golfed with Trump, you've dined with him, and you took his money. You wrote $25,000 when you ran for governor in 2009. Given your view, and you write in your book, he is a dangerous racist. Any regrets about your past association with him? Well, when I knew him, he was a Democrat. <laughs> I mean, honestly, folks, don't kid yourself. This man was a Democrat his whole life. He was pro-choice. He was pro-gay rights. He donated to Democratic candidates. I mean, he wasn't a big political actor, but he was on the stage. He wasn't a Republican. He, you know, he supported all of our causes. He was a big player in New York politics. When I ran for governor in 09, you know, he wrote me a check for $25,000. This is when he was a Democrat. I actually went back in January of 11, and he told me that's the first time he told me. He said, I went back, said, he's probably going to run again. He said, I'm not going to give me any money. He said, 
uh, because I may, I may run for president myself. I'm thinking, yeah, really? Okay. Um, and I said, what party? And he said, well, I don't know yet, but if I do as a Republican, I, you know, this could hurt me. The, the, the guy has no moral core. I mean, but back then, no offense, Judge, the idea that this man was going to be president, I mean, whatever, don't get me started. <laughs> Um, so let's go back to what comment you made a, a little bit earlier about the ACLU of Virginia. Um, so you're concerned that you felt they were, what, on the wrong side in this issue? Because uh, there's more than a couple of times in your book you you don't talk very kindly about the Virginia ACLU. So is it just is it primarily because you just feel they took the wrong stance on that particular issue? And I tell <laughs> in the book that after – that the leaders, many of the leadership of the ACLU nationally resigned after Charlottesville. Uh, I think most of the Jewish members of the ACLU and said, we're not here to protect free speech for neo-Nazis. Now, listen, I, I understand <coughs> that, you know, First Amendment is important. But what is more important is our ability to keep our communities safe. And we had no ability at that park to keep them safe. And that was a huge, huge mistake. And there's a lot in the book that I talk about uh, where we need to go. But the ACLU should never have sided with the neo-Nazis and the white supremacists. I just now they have every right to do what they do. But I, I got to tell you, folks, I just couldn't get over this idea of these people with these swastikas and Adolf Hitler. They, you know, they exterminated six million members of the Jewish faith. I'm sorry. They don't deserve protection in the United States of America. If the governor, <laughs> if the governor and the mayor and the people say we can't keep you safe, that should be our decision. And why you would ever side with neo-Nazis is really, I'm sorry, I don't accept that. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, I know you're a judge and you've got to balance well, all this stuff. Well, yeah, it's important. I know. I know Constitution, I First Amendment. Yeah. All right. Um, Frequently, um, after a racial incident, um, be it a police shooting of an unarmed African-American or protests about racial injustice that erupts into violence, city or county or state leaders convene commissions uh, where communities have these, and I quote, unquote, honest discussions about racial inequality. Um, in the aftermath of the Charlottesville tragedy, you convened such a commission, and yet I'm just curious, you write at the end of your book, and I'm quoting from your book, sure. forget reconciliation commissions, words, words, words. It's a bunch of white people sitting around together trying to feel comfortable to talk about a problem to death, but it doesn't bring change. So why did you create a commission when it appears you don't believe in them? And if these commissions won't work, to end racial divisiveness, what will? The point I make, and there's two different things there. Um, <clears throat> the first point is, of course, I had to put this diversity commission together to make recommendations for me to take action. Like, we've got to do a better job in K-6. We've got to start early on teaching racial diversity and how one deals with one another. The point in the bad, later part of the book, and listen, as bad as Charlottesville was, the one benefit, I think for far too long, people felt that racism had been dealt with in our country and it wasn't an issue anymore. This is a topic that white people, in fairness, don't like to talk about, racial issues. Charlottesville ripped that scab off. 
And we realize that, yeah, this is as prevalent as it's ever been. And the point I'm trying to make is and we have inequities in school. When you have different school districts, and I fought hard as governor to help Norfolk and Petersburg and Richmond, if you don't have the same quality teacher, you don't have the same quality infrastructure of a school, that child is going to have problems <clears throat> the rest of their life. To me, that is racism. If we don't have a fair, affordable housing program so that people have options you know, to raise a family in a home, that's racism to me. And the issue on health care delivery. But one of the biggest points I talk about in the book is on our criminal justice system. We have a racist criminal justice system, I believe. Unfair sentencing. If you are an African-American in many of the southern states, you received a disproportionate sentence. I tell one story of, of a young man, young African-American man by the name of Lenny Singleton. I had the most pardons, <laughs> no surprise to anybody or of any governor of Virginia history, but I had a young man, Lenny Singleton. He was a drug addict. He had a problem with drugs. He committed five robberies. The total theft of all five combined was $535. Nobody was ever injured in the five robberies. So for $535, I'm not going to ask you because you've read the book, but I'll ask you, ma'am, for $535, what do you think his sentence was in Virginia? Yeah, I'm asking you. What do you think? Yeah. Take a guess. Take a guess. Two life sentences plus 130 years. <laughs> Folks, I'm not making this up. I could sit here in this chair and give you 20 of these. $535. And by the time I got to him as governor, he'd served 20 years for $535. My point is you got to do something. And commissions that aren't empowered but sit around and talk without any power to them are meaningless. But with the commission I put together, had teeth to it. So, you know, some of them are good. But my point was a lot of like people like to sit around and chat and, you know, talk about race issues. And then they feel good and they go home and have a little Chablis and everybody's happy. <laughs> I'm just telling you that we got to move on. How did yours have teeth? What kind of teeth in your commission? Well, because of the, the report to the governor, I, as the governor, had the teeth because I enacted the reforms and put them in place. All depends how it was set up. Got it. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program. Uh, we are receiving questions from the audience, which is great, so I'm going to kind of mix them in. Um, what did working with a Republican legislature teach you about divided government? What was good and what was bad? So when I got elected, there were only 32 Democrats out of 100 in my House of Delegates. You know, they worked with me on economic development stuff. They worked <laughs> with me on education. But I had real battles on social issues, which I was able to stop. Them. My biggest fight with them was Medicaid expansion. You know, I wanted to do Medicaid expansion. By doing Medicaid expansion, we would help 400,000 people get health coverage. 2.2 billion would come back into our state. I'd create 35,000 new jobs. 
And the Republicans, when I got elected, uh, the speaker told me at my inauguration, you will never get it as long as you're governor and as long as I'm speaker. You will never get it. I will never give you a vote. Now, think about this for a second. 400,000. You've already paid for it. And I used to say, whether you like Barack Obama, it doesn't matter. It's the law of the land. 400,000 people, we've paid to get health care, and they won't give it to it because it was Obamacare. And I used to have, you know, Republicans come over to my office and say, you know, Governor, I'd vote for it tomorrow because I have a mental health crisis in my rural community. I have an opiate crisis. But if I do, I will lose my Tea Party primary. And they were not willing to risk a job, folks. It paid $17,000 a year to get 400,000 people. That is what is wrong with these gerrymandered districts in this country. That's why we need independent commissions to draw lines, because all they're there for is self-preservation. You know, I came from a business background. I started 30 companies. I was an entrepreneur my whole life. I mean, really? I'm going to sit here for 17 grand and do nothing? It just was so abhorrent to me. And so... That was very bothersome to me. And they used to horrible anti-women gay legislation. I stopped all that. I vetoed all that stuff. I had the most vetoes of any governor, as you can imagine. But I remember, I won't mention his name, but you'll all know who I'm probably talking about. I came out here. One of your biggest companies here was um, looking to do a big investment, billion six data centers. And I came out and met with the CEO. I love to eat apples. And I came out and met with... (laughs) And the first question I got asked was, Governor, why do you have an HB2 bill, which is the anti-gay mm-hmm. legislation? Why do you have an HB2 bill in your state? <clears throat> and I said, well, listen, the guy who introduced it is literally a lunatic. He's a right-wing fanatic, and they can't override my veto. But the point is he asked me the question. Now, they could go to 49 other states. They don't have to come to Virginia. I went back to my Republicans and my legislature and said, you know, you guys think this is cute. But you're killing our ability to grow our economy and bring a new 21st century. And after that, folks, I'm very proud that none of that anti-legislation, anti-women, anti-gay got introduced again. We changed the Commonwealth of Virginia, which was great. Wow. Another question. After Virginia Beach and now Dayton and El Paso, is there any movement on a red flag law? or extreme risk protection order law in Virginia. Where is gun control policy headed in Virginia? Great. So every year I introduced background checks, assault weapon ban, magazine, uh, limit the magazine capacity, and gun show loophole shutdown. Every year I introduced it. I introduced, I think, 26 gun bills. Every year, 6.30 in the morning in a Republican subcommittee, they would be killed with no recorded vote. We just had Virginia Beach. Twelve people were killed. The governor, Democratic Governor Ralph Northam, called everyone back for special session. The Republicans came back. They convened at noon, and they adjourned 90 minutes later without hearing one single bill. The NRA, which is based in Virginia, has bought and paid for every one of these Republican legislators. They just won't do anything. And... 94% of Americans are for universal background checks. I mean, the gun show loophole, I don't know if anyone here has been to a gun show. I did as governor. They're gigantic circus tents with hundreds and hundreds of vendors with signs that say, we don't do background checks, with tables, anything you want. And people come in and purchase these guns. So 
The good news is our House and Senate are up this year. We need one seat in both. If the election were held today, we would win both chambers. And by January, our session next year, we will be the first state. We will be out with all of this stuff. It will pass, and the governor will sign it. Now, nationally, it's the same thing in the Senate. And I, I didn't like Trump's speech the other day. I thought the president should come out, look at the camera, and say, first of all, I'm sorry. My hate speech and my rhetoric have caused divisions in this country, and I'm not going to do that anymore. That would have been a game changer for Trump and for the country. That would have been what leaders do. Second, I would have said, I'm calling Mitch McConnell today. I'm calling him back into session. The House passed universal background checks 161 days ago. I want to vote this week. That's what should have happened. But the NRA has a stronghold on him. But, you know, listen, I'm not going to make tonight too political. We got to beat Trump. We got to knock off Trump. We got to win the Senate. And then we can get all of this done. All right. So we, we are going to get very political right now because I've got a whole series of political questions here from the audience. I was being a little facetious. All right. All right. Um, so let's see. Uh, there's one here. Yes. We'll start with this one. Is there a strategy you could recommend for Democrats to win back the U.S. Senate? What's the strategy? Yeah, it, it's <clears throat> I'm the ultimate optimist. It's a hard map for us. So we've got Alabama. We've got to protect if we don't win Alabama, then we got to pick up four. Unfortunately, some of our best candidates for the Senate are running for president. And, you know, I ultimately made the decision I got to do what I think, you know, I decided not to run for president. Well, I joined 25 and come back and help Virginia because we had issues in Virginia, and I had to come back and, and do that. I'm hoping that some of these presidential candidates who are at 0% We'll go back home. But we have an opportunity in Texas and Colorado and Montana. We could do this. And listen, we're going to beat Trump. I mean, I just don't say I've been doing this a long time. I got to tell you, we lost three states, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, by 77,000 votes combined. And 92 million people did not vote in 2016. And they woke up the next day and said, holy cow. How did this happen? It happened because people didn't vote. And what happened after that? People got energized all over the country. Meetups were on every street corners. The first test was Virginia in 2017, our legislature. Biggest pickup in 144 years. 18, we win the House. We net seven new governors. We pick up eight new state legislative chambers. My point is, it's not 92 million, but is it 10 or 20 or 30 percent who didn't vote in 92, didn't vote in 16 of that 92 million, they are going to come out. Now, our party's been known to be a circular firing squad. Uh, we can screw this up, but it's highly unlikely. And if we can have a great turnout with Trump, then we can win the Senate back. The damage, though, I'm speaking frankly, I'm the ultimate optimist, but the damage he's done to the federal judiciary oh. will take generations to change. I hate to say that. It's true. It's true. The current governor of Virginia is Ralph uh, Northam. He's a Democrat. His term is up in 2022. Um, will you run for governor again in 2022? Well, that's the rumor. Um, <clears throat> you know, listen, I'm back helping in 19. I, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do yet, but I loved being governor. I think it's the greatest job in the world. 
because I love to use executive authority to help people. I wasn't scared of being sued. And, you know, as I say, I leaned in on every issue and I loved it every single day. I'm very proud. When I took office, we were red. When I left office, we were blue. We are a Democratic state. We're the only southern state that went for Hillary in 2016. We are an open, welcoming state. And I don't know what I'm going to do. I wouldn't foreclose it. But, you know, Judge, I don't foreclose anything. I'd like to be Pope. I'd like to be, t- <laughs> I'd like to be Tom Brady's backup quarterback. I mean, there are a lot of things I'd like to do in life. I don't shut the- I'd like to be a judge. That ain't going to happen. But Well, um, I have another question then following up. Why aren't you running for president? You have my vote, someone wrote. <laughs> Thank you very much. Whoever- Listen, I was going to run. I'm, I'll be very honest with you. I spent all last year campaigning for House, Senate, for governors. I thought the message of a Southern Democrat who inherited a huge deficit, left a big surplus, created a record amount of jobs, socially progressive, was a pretty good message. But there were 25 people running. And Joe Biden I'd known forever. I always thought that Biden wasn't going to run, was my personal calculus. He decided to run. And then we had all these issues in Virginia. So it was the, and so I went over and spent about three hours having dinner with Joe Biden one night. And then the, the Virginia stuff blew up. So do I get in with 25? He, he's sort of in my space. I would have had to get around him. Or can I come back and make the biggest difference? And we're going to win the House and Senate this year. And I'm, you know, I've done 58 events, folks, in the last couple of weeks in Virginia. I'm doing every night. I'm killing myself. I've raised millions of dollars for the party. I mean, I had to take over because of the problems in Virginia. And what does that mean? That means in January, you know, we're going to raise the minimum wage. Our minimum wage is $7.25. It's a disgrace. It, yeah. And I, we'll get, I, as governor, I used executive authority to put Virginia in Reggie, the regional greenhouse gas initiative, the only southern state. Uh, for carbon reduction. Republicans just took it out. So next year, all this stuff I want to get done as governor will get done. And, you know, the way I look at it, I'm still a young man. Absolutely. Thank you. Absolutely. You know, life is short. Absolutely. Uh, racism is increasingly becoming aligned with the political right. How do we effectively reduce racism without rejecting Republicans at face value, tempting as that may be? <laughs> From the... Well, it's an interesting point that's raised because, I mean, shame on the Republican Party who has not stood up to Donald Trump on any single issue. I mean, they can all play their games all they want. They have allowed Trump and they they refuse to come come out and condemn him. Like when he attacked Elijah Cummings last week, he went after the squad. When he tweeted, I say, neo-Nazi stuff. So they're culpable. They, they, you know, they're right in bed with them. <laughs> they need to pay a price for that. And we got to wipe them. They, they, we got to knock them on, get them out of office. That's the most important thing we can do. But <clears throat> you can't allow the president. Uh, they're just been such chickens. I've never seen anything like it. And issues of impeachment, all of this stuff that's gone on, the self-dealing this, this family has done in the White House, the issues that's gone on overseas, they never say anything. <coughs> they, they murder a Washington Post, Virginia resident, journalist, and Trump is siding up with MBS over in Saudi Arabia, and the Senate says nothing? We have lost our moral standing in the world, and it's because of the Republicans. So which Democratic presidential candidate 
they're 20, 21, do you believe can best heal the divisions in our country? Have you endorsed one? And if so, who? And if not, will you endorse one? Well, I'm not going to be a chicken on you here, but I am a CNN commentator now. I don't know if you see me on TV. I mean, CNN actually pays me to talk. Don't tell CNN. (laughs) I would have paid them to talk, but whatever. We'll leave that for here and there. But listen, here's where we are. You've got Joe Biden leading the pack. Elizabeth Warren right underneath, Bernie underneath there, uh, probably Kamala, and then Pete underneath there. Biden is, today, Biden is viewed as the one who has the best chance of beating Donald Trump. Um, there was a poll in Ohio, Ohio the other day. He's beaten Trump by eight in Ohio. He's beaten him in North Carolina. He's beaten him in Georgia. He's beaten him in Texas. But that can change. Um, I thought Elizabeth Warren had a very good debate. I think both of her debates have been very good. Um, I think Biden had a weak first debate. I think he did better in the second debate. You're going to get two or three tickets coming out of Iowa. I think it's going to be probably, my personal opinion, you're going to have in that mix, it's going to be probably, and, and Warren has taken a lot of Senator Sanders' support. So she's really impacting him. I think Kamala and Warren and Biden are most likely to be the, the tickets out of Iowa. Bernie's got about, could, could have about 10%. But I'll tell you the one thing, these debates, I have not been all that impressed with, folks. I'll be very honest with you. I've said this on TV. They've been too negative for me. First of all, we need some joyful warriors out there that will unite America and, you know, uh, get us excited. We've had too much bickering about health care. We own the issue of health care. Donald Trump has ruined health care in this country. And we're talking about Medicare for all up here, and everybody's confused on it. And people are sitting at home saying, wait a minute. What are you doing about my prescription drug costs? Tell me. I'm a family of four sitting home. Tell me exactly how you're going to reduce my prescription drug costs. How are you going to stop these out-of-network hospital costs that I get? And that's what people are facing at home. And we're up here fighting over this stuff, mind-numbing. Most Americans are confused about it. And we talk about, you know, we want immigrants to come in and no one will be charged with a crime. And then everybody gets health care. Americans are sitting home. Wait a minute. I got health care. I pay for it. My point is we're not sending the right messaging. I have not heard K-12. Oh, thank you very much. (laughs) I have not heard K-12 discussed. I have not heard infrastructure discussed. I have not heard about cybersecurity. I have not heard about workforce development. And I have not heard a question about world global affairs today. So my point is... Don't let these moderators set you up into this, you know, clash that we're all fighting, this death march we're on. Start talking about issues that people care about. It's interesting. I mean, I I don't even call them debates. I mean, that's not a debate. These are forums. I understand that. So are you saying a message to the candidates that they need to step up and, what, take charge of these forums? Yes. Uh, The big story in the Washington Post the other day, I was the lead paragraph. It's basically exactly what I said. And be more joyful because, you know, we all, they all look like lemon suckers. I mean, people want to be motivated. And I mean, we got Trump. And then the idea that they attacked Biden on Barack Obama's policies. I mean, really? This guy was a great president. He has a 95% approval rating and you're attacking Biden on Barack Obama's policies. That has to be one of the dumbest things I have ever heard. I'll be honest with you. What is the what are what is the possibility that President Trump could crash and burn the Republican Party? 
by 2021's White House exit. By last part? By his exit. Assuming he exits in 2021, uh, do you think he could crash and burn the Republican Party before he even exits? Or has he already done it? Yeah, I do. I think... Yeah, some people actually say that if he loses, he won't leave. That's not going to happen. I mean... (laughs) I'll be right there with the rest of us. <laughs> Whatever. I don't want to get there, but that'll get me in trouble. But I think what happened with El Paso and what you just saw in Dayton, which you saw here in Gilroy, the public is really shifting now. They really are demanding action. And, you know, we have these instances in Sandy Hook and... Virginia Beach, and they're forgotten after a couple of days. But I think now so much hatred and so much has gone on. That's why I'm thinking that the Republican Party is going to pay a huge price in 2020. I'm optimistic. I, I, we're really going to win the White House. But I think we got a shot to do in the Senate. And that's what we need to do. But, folks, you got to vote. I, I mean, I know you all vote here. But that 92 million people didn't think that the election mattered and had, you know, 78,000 come out in those three states. We wouldn't have the crisis on the Supreme Court we have today. We wouldn't have all of this insanity. 78,000 votes. I can't. And it's just mind boggling to me that people don't think they need to vote. And we need to all positively energize and go to these states that matter. But listen, I think uh, Trump can permanently destroy the Republican Party. We just got to get power. And then I'll be honest with you, I'm a tough Democrat. And when we get power, we got to use power. And uh, too many of our Democrats like, oh, you know, forget it. You know, when I had power, God dang, I used it. (laughs) And I loved it. And I help people every single day. But, you know, let's get smart about this stuff. I mean, think of Mitch McConnell. He did not have a hearing on Merrick Garland for a year and a half. Think of that. He won't call the bill up for universal background checks. We got to get tough. They're tough on the other side. Right. We got to get tougher. You punch me, I'm going to punch you back twice as hard. Uh-oh. I'm sorry. Just, you know, I'm Irish. <laughs> it ain't about me. It's about the people I'm fighting for. Do you worry about Russian meddling in the upcoming election? No question. It's going on. I can tell you it's going sorry. on every single day. Everybody has said it. The head of the FBI, the CIA, that they're as active as they've ever been. Um, they're trying to sow hate and division out there. They're really promoting all of this stuff with the white supremacy, trying to divide the Democratic Party. We have voter suppression goes on all over the country. You know, I talked to Stacey Abrams yesterday. And, you know, remember, she had 50,000 African-Americans disenfranchised a couple of weeks before the election. Right. This has gone on case in point. You want an absentee ballot in Virginia? There's just 13 questions you've got to fill out and all this stuff. I mean, they make it hard for people to vote. We've got to stop the voter suppression, voter disenfranchisement that goes on in this country. Since we have a, thank you, thank you. Since we have a president doing nothing about racism, what can we do? What should we do? First, acknowledging that racism exists and may not be the case out here in California, but there are parts of this country. Okay, good, 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 good. Let it exist. I can tell you in some of the Southern States, not an issue. Everything's fine. It's not fine. And 
really have racism all over the country. And I go to the point it's about schools and all those other issues. So, A, voting, holding people accountable, but holding elected officials accountable. And, and right in the book, do something. Get out there and hold these officials. Too many people are comfortable in their life. And they're really not wanting to challenge some of the things that really make their life a little bit more difficult and to get out there and really shake things up. And hopefully this book is a call to action for people. We can't go the way we're going. And, and I talk about in the book, listen, I think what really, when Barack Obama got elected, for certain people to have a black man in the White House was just too far for them. Yep. And it really created this schism. They didn't really act on it. They talked about it. But then you have Trump come along with the birther movement, all the craziness he had, and all the things that he took. It was sitting there like a powder keg, and he took a match to it. Now, we got to stop it. we got to put that out. we got to beat Trump is the most, obviously the most important thing we can do. But it's really civically getting engaged. If your schools, you know, as I, as I talk about, are unfair, then you ought to get involved. You don't have to be on the school board, but you ought to hold your school board uh, officials accountable. Where are you with students? Because to me, I go back and I talk about the book, it all goes back to education. People are not born saying, I want to burn you alive like I burned you in Auschwitz. They're not. It comes, starts at home, but it really, it starts at education and the interaction that you have at a young age with other people. And folks, we got to do a better job at it, and we don't do it. Schools don't do anything. We're doing it now in Virginia, but schools generally between K and 6 don't do anything about talking how to respect and diversity with one another. How could the federal government then work with school districts to promote this K through 12 civic education. What should we ought to make mandatory? We ought to, we ought to fund it. We ought to make it mandatory to have honest conversations, uh, to begin the discussion, no matter whom you pray to or whom you love or the color of your skin, that doesn't happen. I didn't have it as a kid growing up. Did you in your school? No way. I mean, most people didn't, but it ought to be, it's, it's important to me as math or English or history or anything else. Begin that discussion and break down the barriers because our hunt, our country today is really torn apart, and I blame Trump for it, and we just got to put it back together. We can't let Trump hold us down. Can you speak about the work being done on affordable housing in Charlottesville? We are here tonight in a city overwhelmed by gentrification, and in Virginia, they're doing incredible grassroots-level work to address how white supremacy seeps into the community at the economic level. Yeah, affordable housing is, and we have, um, you, I mean, you're, you're like the center point here in, in San Francisco, and, in Los Angeles. I mean, California, we, I have the same thing in Northern Virginia. You know, you have to move an hour and a half away to be able to work in, you know, close to, close to Northern Virginia, and it's really hard. This is something I think the federal government needs to tackle. I know, you know, Ben Carson came out with these opportunity zones. That's not dealing with the issue that we have. We need, and, and some, of the, some of it is regulatory. We make it so difficult. We make it so difficult and so expensive to try and build affordable housing. The regulations make it so difficult. Government can solve this. We have plenty of land that we can do it, but we got to have a, we got to have a plan from the federal and the state and the locals to tackle this issue. I put millions and millions of dollars when I was governor into affordable housing programs because it's just so hard on so many families. It eats up so much of their income. 
But I think this will be one of the biggest issues our nation faces over the next 10 years. I think every elected official is going to be held accountable on affordable housing. Um, you know, we've made great progress on health care. We got 190 million Americans covered. We still got to cover 26 million, which we can do if we change the eligibility requirements on Medicare. That's what I'm saying on this Medicare for all. I mean, we just, we'll cover these 26 million, but we got to get costs down. We got to focus on costs as it relates to them. But I think beyond that, I think the biggest issue out there is affordable housing. It's a complex regulatory, but it's something that we all need to solve together because it goes, it's, it, it, what I talk about racism, education, housing, health care, and, and sentencing. To me, those are the four big issues in this country today. Wow. And we've got to get rid of these minimum mandatory sentences as well. Absolutely. I, I found your remarks at the press conference after the Charlottesville tragedy, um, remarks you gave without any teleprompter, without any notes at all. I found them to be very compelling and very heartfelt. And so I think, and so very appropriate in today's America. So I'd like to close our conversation this evening um, by asking you, if you would, did you read just a portion of those remarks that you gave at the press conference to our audience? Is that all right? Okay. And And one thing I should also mention is in the book, I'm donating all the proceeds to the Heather Heyer Foundation, to the families who've lost one in the line of duty, and to the survivors. So... So this was from my press conference on August 12th. I have a message to all the white supremacists and the Nazis who came into Charlottesville today. Our message is plain and simple. Go home. You are not wanted in this great commonwealth. Shame on you. You pretend that you are patriots, but you are anything but a patriot. You think about the patriots today, the young men and women who are wearing the cloth of our country. Somewhere around the globe, they are putting their lives in danger. They are patriots. You are not. You came here today to hurt people, and you did hurt people. But my message is clear to you. We are stronger than you. You will not succeed. There is no place for you here. There is no place for you here in America. We work here today to bring people together, to unify folks. I'll remind you that we all are a nation of immigrants. Our diversity, that mosaic tile of immigrants, is what makes us so special. And we will not let anybody come here and destroy it. So please go home and never, ever come back. Take your hatred and take your bigotry. And if I could give you one piece of advice, please use your time and energy to help people. Come with me to a homeless shelter. Come with me to help a veteran find a job or a place to live. Stop the hate speech. We have got to bring people together. And with that. Thank you. Thank you. With that, a huge thank you to you, Governor McAuliffe, author of the book Beyond Charlottesville, for joining us this evening. And uh, just a reminder, copies of his book are available for purchase, and Governor McAuliffe will be happy to sign copies uh, in just a few minutes. Uh, I am Judge Ladaris Cordell, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club, the place where you are in the know, is adjourned. Thank you. Thank you.